we knew and we chose not to do more to help the people who were throughout the 30s and then into the 40s trying to escape this cataclysm. And that is on us, I think. That's legendary filmmaker Ken Burns discussing his new documentary that he calls his most important one ever. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. I spoke to Burns and co-director and producer Sarah Botstein days before the release of their new three-part documentary series, The U.S. and the Holocaust. The Nazis had already begun the mass murder of Jews. Examining one of the darkest moments in history from a perspective they say every American needs to know. We start our film with the story of Otto Frank and Frank's father. He spends most of the 30s trying to get to the United States. Can you imagine most people's entrance into the story of the Holocaust, particularly school children, is through the story of Anne Frank, in which we think we have no responsibility. The fact that she could be living among us today, that her children could be here, and we didn't want them in there. The series explores what the government and the American people knew of Nazi atrocities and it explores the U.S. response as Hitler murdered six million Jews. Why did the U.S. not do more? You know, there's rampant anti-Semitism in the United States. It's been fired up by authoritarian figures in the media, not dissimilar to today. This nativist, white supremacist, honestly anti-Semitic country is something we really have to confront and understand its history. We talked about the unsettling ways in which our contemporary society rhymes with the themes in the film. And we discussed, have we learned the right lesson? As we went along, we realized almost every sentence is echoing in the present. Sarah, do you see this film as a warning? I do think that the film can be a warning, that democracies fall quickly, that, don't kid yourself, human beings throughout history have been terrible to each other. Ken Burns, Sarah Bostein, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you. Thank you. You have both worked on films on a range of topics, from the Vietnam War to Ernest Hemingway to a film about incarcerated students working to earn their college degrees. That's just naming a few. But you have, along with your director and producer, Lynn Novick, come out with a three-part documentary series called The U.S. and the Holocaust, which premieres this Sunday. There are at least 100 documentaries about the Holocaust so why did you need to make this film now? Well, the now is very um, loose. We decided to do this in 2015. Uh, it was a far different environment in 2015, and it's taken us seven years to do it. So there's not a sense of now. We're just drawn to topics authentically. And it's not that there's 100 films or 1,000 films or no films about them. It's just that we have to feel like we've got an, an angle to pursue it. In this case, we had finished a film, Sarah and Lynn and I, that Jeffrey Ward had written on the Second World War called The War that came out in 2007. And when it was done, we were peppered with questions. It had a small section on the Holocaust. Um, seemed to be driven by misinformation and disinformation and conspiracies about this and that. And we kind of noted, we really ought to vi revisit what America and the Holocaust is about. And then Jeff Ward and I made a film on the Roosevelts seven years later in 2014. The same thing happened. And we, then we were really serious. We were approached by the Holocaust Museum in Washington and said, we have an exhibition called Americans and the Holocaust. Are you interested in kind of a, working on a film about that uh, in parallel with them? And we said yes, uh, not to coincide with the exhibition, but to augment it and do our own work. And so for us, it was really important to re-see the Holocaust uh, through the lens of what the U.S. involvement is in terms of what we knew and when we knew it, what we didn't know, what we did know, what we did, what we didn't do, what we should have done, uh, all of these sorts of myriad questions that had beset us as we approached myriad other projects. The series was originally set to be released in 2023. And Ken, I've heard you say I will not work on a more important film than this. And so I wonder, Sarah, was there no urgency in moving up the date? Well, there definitely was urgency in moving up the date, and I we will put that squarely on the man to my left here, who I think realized as we were making the film and these themes, topics, 
notions and parts of American history that we were exploring felt more and more urgent as things were happening while we were editing the film in real time. And he turned to us and said, I think we have to accelerate this broadcast. I don't want to wait a year. And we all kind of gulped and said, um, okay, we're going to really try to make that happen. And he was right. The Anti-Defamation League has been tracking anti-Semitic incidents since 1979 and um, has noted that they have reached an all-time high since they have been tracking them just in the last year. This includes incidents against synagogues, schools, community centers, an average of more than seven incidents per day. Does the rising prevalence of anti-Semitism in our country today influence the way you approach this? No. It's really important to understand that there's not a film that we've worked on, and I've done more than 40, in which you're not aware while you're working on it that it has a resonance in the present. And it's the responsibility of the filmmaker, unless you're a different kind of filmmaker, uh, to ignore that, to know that there are always, human nature doesn't change, so there are always going to be resonances and echoes, rhymes, Mark Twain would say, uh, of what's going on. And so we are trying to faithfully tell our story, not point arrows at it or neon signs saying, isn't this so like today? But the way we sort of mount the film, the way we set the table at the beginning, is to detail the long history of American treatment, mistreatment of Native Americans and the dispossession of their land, uh, racism born of the African slave trade, uh, millennia of anti-Semitism, which has its own American uh, uh, variety, uh, eugenics, the pseudoscience that tries to classify races and ethnicities, the Great Depression and the pressures that were put on American people, or regular folks, and the kind of rise of authoritarianism there. So as we're working on the film over the many years, we're beginning to hear in our daily lives similar things. And so we felt that rather than dismount the film at a, at a safe juncture in the mid-60s when LBJ changes the essential uh, immigration law that's affected, at least legally, who's being brought in and who's not being brought into the United States during these critical years, we realized we sort of had an obligation to the story and to ourselves and to the people, our audience, to bring it up to the present. So in a very short, few-minute impressionistic, no narration, there's a sense of gathering. Some of the things that the ADL is documenting, the, the killing of people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, rising xenophobia and, and nationalist sentiment, the anti-immigrant uh, thing, the racism, the anti-Semitism, which seems to have a new flowering. So there are lots of moments in the film where it echoes in the present. And then all of a sudden, as we went along, we realized almost every sentence is echoing in the present. And so we, there, we had obligations, not so much as filmmakers, but as citizens to sort of say, and this is happening. There's a moment in the film when the great Holocaust scholar Deborah Lipstadt says, the time to stop a genocide is before it happens, to which I would add in my own modest way, the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. Do you think we're there now? I think that we've had three great crises leading up to here, the, the Civil War, the Depression, and the Second World War. At the end of the Constitutional Convention, Franklin was asked what he'd created, a monarchy or a republic, and he said, a republic if you can keep it. And I think that through more than 245 years, we've been able, in the midst of those crises, to keep those institutions well, that, that we've had the free and fair elections, that we've had the peaceful transfer of power, we've had the respect for institutions, um, the courts have remained independent for the most part, not that they're liberated from making stupid decisions, they have across the history of the United States, regardless of what political perspective you might have. But right now, I think we're in our fourth great crisis, and all of those things are under assault. And so I'd rather be working on the mechanics together with people, not in any partisan way, than be looking past the way the German people now have to do at, at what happened. You just said you think now we're in our fourth great crisis. Yes. How do you characterize that crisis? I think that, that the institutions that have been uh, the bulwark of the success of our democracy and the peaceful transfer of power are all under assault from a variety of reasons. But the manifestations of 
racism, of anti-Semitism, of nativism and xenophobia are part and parcel of what is uh, the language of the dissolution and the questioning of these institutions. And so I think in some ways, you know, Shelby Foote said in the Civil War that the North fought the war with one arm tied behind the back, saying that if there had been more Southern victories, we'd have just taken the other arm out and ended the war just because of the sheer economic and industrial dominance, population, you know, dominance in that case. In the Depression, there was great talk of us having to revert to kind of dictatorial authoritarian ways to get ourselves out of the Depression. And we were fortunate that we did not have to do that in the way that Germany succumbed to it. And in the Second World War, it took a coalition of people to overcome uh, the monstrous Nazi regime and the imperial uh, advances of Japan. So it's, it's uh, I, I think right now, while we don't have the obvious hallmarks of that death and you know, really transforming economic dislocation, that, that there's subtleties here. I'll give you an example. If you wanted to be in the hippest, most cosmopolitan place in the world in 1930 or 31 or 32, where there's new things happening in cinema, new things happening in architecture, new things happening in music, in painting, in ideas, in intellectual discourse of all kinds, you would do no better than to go to Berlin. 1933, that is not the case. And everything has changed. Everything has changed. And it will change the world and create the greatest cataclysm in human history, of which the Holocaust is a part of that cataclysm. I've heard you say you believe this is one of the most challenging times in our history. Yes. You can understand from many people who came to know you through your series on the Civil War that that lands very strongly. Is this more important and more serious than the Civil War? I don't think it's more important or more serious. I think that it has the capability of being subtle enough in its manifestations that we can miss the ultimate seriousness. If you have, you know, we, there was an election in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, one of his former generals, him being Lincoln's formal generals, ran against him. And it was presumed because of his popularity with the soldiers and his sort of straddling the issue of the war and Lincoln's definitive carved out position that uh, um, McClellan would win, and he did not. And Lincoln won, and in the middle, and his soldiers voted overwhelmingly for their commander in chief, not their popular general. It's a really moving moment, but the most important thing is that in the time of national division and war, there was an election in the Union. And uh, the, there was a peaceful transition of power. And we got to have the second inaugural address, which is one of the most beautiful speeches in history because of that. Can you have said that, I'm paraphrasing, every film you do is about the same thing, that it's about us. It's about us as a country, us as a people. What did you learn about us in making this film? And I'd like you to answer this too, Sarah, that you didn't already know about us. I'm not, it's very hard to put your finger on it quite precisely. You know, the, the who are we question is something that you ask and you sound in each film, and something comes back. I, I think it is the fact that we have, with the Holocaust, conveniently hid behind the skirts that we didn't know anything, and that therefore we are disconnected by an ocean and a continent from these events that took place. When in fact, we knew there were 3,000 articles in 1933 alone about what was going on in the early years, where it's just beginning to get bad, right? We knew, and we chose not to do more to help the people who were throughout the 30s and then into the 40s trying to escape you know, this cataclysm. And, and that is on us, I think. Sarah, what did you learn about us that you didn't already know? I think for me, the central tension and theme of both the film and for me personally, what I learned is just how deep-seated this nativist, xenophobic, white supremacist, anti-Semitic, racist part of America and how long it's 
been here and how vicious it has been and how complicated, particularly in the 20th century after the Civil War, those dynamics play out. And I didn't quite appreciate how immigration had worked and the specifics of the 1924 Immigration Restriction Act and how that really changed the landscape of what kind of a country this is when it comes to immigration. And this rhetoric of build a wall, one immigrant group coming here, establishing themselves, pushing another immigrant down, sort of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, how anti-Catholic, how it, just this, this nativist, white supremacist, honestly, anti-Semitic country is something we really have to confront and understand its history. Well, you, you go into this long tradition of xenophobia and um, frankly also isolationism, but you deal with our treatment of indigenous groups and black Americans as a starting point for that. And then you dive into how Hitler himself was actually inspired by some of these darker chapters in American history. Sarah, tell me more. Well, you know, as we moved west and the horrific treatment and experience of the Native American populations being rounded up, pushed aside, um, as Nell Painter says, we have to confront Native American genocide to understand our history. I think we do a better job actually of understanding our Jim Crow laws and our segregation and we think we like to think that we're in some post-racial world, which I don't think that we are. But Hitler understood that about us, and he said, you know, our Mississippi must be the Volga, so he wants to move east, and what is in his way are these populations of Jews. The film really dives into how Hitler took inspiration from the American legal system and how it treated black Americans in the context of our Jim Crow laws. Yeah. I think Hitler admired most our ability to subdue and, and sort of eliminate the native population and to isolate them into reservations, read concentration camps. His, he thought that the Johnson-Reed Act was an example of the vitality of the United States that had recognized that the Nordic and Aryan, the Johnson-Reed Act favored Northern European white Protestants rather than Southern Central European Catholic Jews and, and other um, minorities in its pernicious quota system. Um, He's German jurists did study our Jim Crow laws to fashion the first discriminatory laws against uh, Jews. And in fact, they were less harsh than ours in the definition in many state statutes. Uh, one drop of, of, quote, Negro blood made you an African-American. Uh, they determined there were two types of Jews and then two types of mongrels and then the pure Aryan race. And in those four or five categories, you could do that. But if you were 128th, 164th, 132nd, uh, have African-American blood, that made you liable to some sort of um, discrimination in the United States. So after th that happens, there's a hue and cry about many of the things he's done and protests against the, them. And, you know, the invariable answer to our protests against the treatment of the Jews in the, in the developing 30s is Mississippi. The scholar Peter Hayes says in our film, you know, you consider these people inferior and you pass laws to limit their abilities. We consider these people inferior and that's all we're doing. How dare you talk to this about it? But he gradually comes to understand the United States is really weak and under the control of Jews and under the sway of, of black music in the form of jazz. And so his, his idea of us is that we are weak and we have lost our original virility. He will learn on the battlefield how wrong that is. Over the course of six hours, the film covers from before Hitler took power to after World War II. Uh, public opinion in the United States was often not in favor of helping uh, the Jewish people. And, you know, the actions of the United States federal government, who led by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, often reflected that public and popular opinion. So by the end of the Holocaust, the United States had admitted 225,000 Jewish refugees, more than any other sovereign took in. But still only a fraction of the six million Jews who perished. Why did the U.S. not do more? Ken and then Sarah. 
Well, you know, I think it's what Sarah has been saying. You know, there's rampant anti-Semitism in the United States. It's been fired up by authoritarian figures in the media, not dissimilar to today. Uh, Father Coughlin, the radio priest, preaching hatred about Jews to millions. Henry Ford, the industrialist, has bought a newspaper and republished one of the most vile hoaxes about Jewish power called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion that still circulate in the internet today as the kind of Bible of anti-Jewish sentiment. Um, You have a lot of people dislocated by the uh, depression who are susceptible to scapegoating, and that's what human beings do. They make others of other people uh, when, in fact, there's only one race, and that's the human one. And uh, so we end up um, not just the federal government. There's the Congress, which has passed the law. The executive is in charge of executing it, the law. There are implacable racists and anti-Semites in the State Department who slow walk. I mean, if we had just followed the quota system, the restrictive quota system, we could have let in five times as many Jews. And we didn't, so people would change the rules. We start our film with the story of Otto Frank, Anne Frank's father. He spends most of the 30s trying to get to the United States. Can you imagine most people's entrance into the story of the Holocaust, particularly school children, is through the story of Anne Frank, in which we think we have no responsibility. This is an interesting story that begins when they're you know, beginning to get worried about having to hide all through the hiding and before they're taking away. That's the end of the doc. It doesn't document her experience at Auschwitz and then later back into uh, Germany and concentration camps and her death by disease. It is a different kind of story. But the fact that she could be living among us today, that her children could be here, um, and we didn't want them in there. Now, it's not enough to say this is what the public wants. We're a democracy. This is what it is. You're fed a lot of things. It's like saying the German people went along with this. There is a higher kind of moral place that we could have arrived at. Franklin Roosevelt could have been more vociferous in his opposition to it. We could have rid the State Department of its anti-Semites. We could have hopefully convinced Congress and the American people to change the laws, but we could have at least yelled louder about what was happening to European Jewry at the time, and we did not do that. And because of that, we failed. And had we let in five times as many people, I suggest we still would have failed. One of the utterly tragic incidents that you recount in the film is that of the MS St. Louis. This is the ship that was carrying more than 900 Jews that left Hamburg, Germany for Cuba in 1939. And when it arrived in Havana, it was turned away. Some of its passengers were allowed into Cuba, but only a few. And then it set sail and was not permitted into Canada or the United States, even after several of the passengers made direct pleas via telegram to the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, there are scholars. The St. Louis returned to Europe, 254 of its passengers later perished in the Holocaust. Some scholars have argued that FDR had numerous options, including passing an executive order to create temporary holding centers for the passengers. There there are things he could have done and that his that it was apathy towards the Jewish uh, condition, the Jewish refugees that, that came to characterize his approach to Jewish refugees generally. Fair or not fair? Go ahead, Sarah. I'm gonna say, I think it's also too, uh, important to remember when the St. Louis happened. So the St. Louis happens before the Second World War has begun. It's the spring of 1939. We're not in the war. The, the war in Europe hasn't happened. Do I think the United States could have done more around the St. Louis? And it is on our country and the Roosevelt administration that we didn't, absolutely. I don't feel comfortable, I think, um, saying that it's a symbol of some kind of larger apathy. I think Roosevelt is extremely complicated when it comes to this subject. And one of the things we have to always remember is the circumstances that were happening here. So he understands that we have an army smaller than that of Bulgaria at this time, that he has a humanitarian crisis that is real and he needs to deal with, and the St. Louis is a symbol of that. But he also has a huge world war brewing on, on you know, coming. It's 
long time before we're actually in the war. So I think putting ourselves back to that time to understand the choices and decisions that were made. Having said that, I think that the St. Louis should have um, had the opportunity to come here. And, you know, a lot of the people who went back to Europe on the St. Louis, two-thirds of them survived in countries that had not yet been overrun or invaded and didn't think that that's what was going to happen. I, I, I think it's completely unfair, and unfair for a lot of reasons. This is a person who has um, uh, named more Jews to his administration than any other president before him. His Secretary of Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, is a Jew. It's a good friend of his. He is completely aware of it. His wife is right on all of the issues of the day and the humanitarian ones. But as Sarah suggests, he's got other exigencies. You know, the scholar Peter Hayes in our film says that we would think in retrospect that the humanitarian issue would be the most important thing. Uh, but he's trying to revoke the Neutrality Acts. And if he hadn't revoked the Neutrality Acts, we might, this is me speaking, be speaking German. And that's not a, a joke. The, the Germans had trained cadres to take over every section of the United States, and we interviewed a man who bumped into somebody who was going to, who was planning to administer his section of Connecticut uh, in the German Foreign Service. So this is this is an important. The other thing is, is if this is a red herring, this is a posthumous, so? posthumous looking back at Roosevelt to try to find an American villain in this. The anti-Semites and the anti-immigrationists called him Frank D. Rosenfeld. They called his main program the Jew Deal. So it's hard for me to get up. Uh, we're hard on him when he shows a kind of political savvy that makes him appear cold. We want to be hard there. He has got a lot of things going. What he isn't doing is being a principal actor in this. The principal actor is Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime, which is going to be murdering six million Jews. We do more, his administration does more than any other sovereign nation to get people out. It's not enough. He helps give the go ahead to the single most important creation of the United States, which is the War Refugee Board out of treasury by his Jewish Secretary of Treasury, which will save more human beings than any other agency in the course of the war. Late, to be sure. Not enough, to be sure. I already said there's a failure. But our film is called The U.S. and the Holocaust. It could easily be us and the Holocaust. We have to rea realize that the main agent of this insensitivity are the American people in their totality. He is aware of that. He, is, um, he leads a democratic coalition that is made up of a significant number of conservative Southern Committee chairmen. He knows what he can and cannot get, and he has to act in that way. And so it's, it is a very subtle thing in which we, case by case, moment by moment, kind of examine what he's doing and kind of imply a judgment on it or just reserve it and just say, this is the evidence at this point or that point. But I find it so interesting that a lot of people are preoccupied with a kind of parlor game about, well, FDR was an anti-Semite, wasn't he, kind of thing. And that happens all the time. In fact, that's one of the motivations for doing the film, was just how many people were kind of armed, and it seemed mostly posthumously from their own political point of view now, to go back and try to say, well, the villain of this must be this guy whose politics I don't agree with. And, 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 and there's a kind of, you have to be very careful as filmmakers trying to just come down straight on each thing because he's not perfect by no stretch of the imagination and we don't let him get away with stuff and we hold his feet to the fire where I think it's appropriate. But this kind of wholesale painting of somebody who is sympathetic to this situation is, I think, unfair. But he could have let them in. He could have found a way. I think we have to remember that he is not the king and he's not uh, a Fuhrer. And while he probably could have spent a great deal of political capital and perhaps let the St. Louis in, um, it's a fraction, a drop in the bucket of the refugees. And what he might have had to sacrifice in order to do that, to get that done, might have been the difference in revoking the Neutrality Acts, which I would suggest trump all of that. And let's remember that 
the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee and other organizations, while the St. Louis is going back to Germany, raise enough money that convinces five other countries that have not been invaded, it is before the war, to take in all of these people. And it is only a third of the people who are killed once the Germans overrun their country of sanctuary. So it is not even related to the St. Louis. And the St. Louis captain, a German, is willing to run his ship aground rather than bring it back to Hamburg. So we've got a very, very complex dynamic. And you had mentioned earlier about writing, the, even though people had reached out to the president. I've, I've written the presidents uh, uh, all during my life, starting with... Um, um, John Kennedy and then Lyndon Johnson telling him what I felt about the war in Vietnam. He never responded to me. That's a bad correspondence office. I think I think you guys know, though, because of the history, that those who telegrammed the president directly actually had a personal context with him. Yes, indeed. So it's a little different yeah, no. than, than sixth grader Ken Burns yes. writing JFK. But throughout the film, you deal with Roosevelt's struggle between his desire to help the Jews and public op- opinion being overwhelmingly against changing the quotas, helping the Jews, and loosening immigration restrictions. And you spend a lot of time covering that. There are other circumstances you talked about, the exigencies, the politics, him having to weigh, Roosevelt having to weigh um, the importance at, at each of these pivot points. There are other times in Roosevelt's presidency, and I ask you this as somebody who has studied Roosevelt deeply, where he doesn't actually care about public opinion at all when you consider the court packing, his willingness to flout public opinion, and, and, and the limits of his own presidential authority. Why not in the case of taking in Jewish refugees then? Well, I think your examples aren't quite right. Let's just take or unpack the court packing thing. This is something that he springs on. It's, it's a huge political mistake on his part, on his own party, and they go, no, that's about it. There's a lot of hue and cry. We've we've invented most of the hue and cry. Um, the scholar William Luchtenberg believed that more than half of the American people would support the expansion of the court. He just did it politically wrong. Um, I don't think that he was ever insensitive. The, the key point, I think, that we bring up in our film, or for me, that I sort of helps me understand a little bit about what is the seeming inaction that you're bringing up, is that he sees... Hitler, as he refers to it, as psychopathic. He thinks that Europe is a vast prison camp and his job is to liberate that. And that when you're dealing with a psychopathic person, which is often the psychology of authoritarians everywhere, there's no shame involved. There's nothing, you, you've got to really begin to just go at it. And the American public, because he knows what their opinion is, and whether they've been fed lies or not, or it's just genuinely their own opinion, he knows what he can and can't do. There is an example to bring in refugees, and they go to a fort on Lake Ontario, and and it's a very kind of happy story, and it's an example. He doesn't let in any more, as we say. But so there's there's limitations here. I I don't I can't in the end explain why there was more. I think your question is implying more of the bully pulpit here. Why not risk more political capital? He was politically very savvy, and he was willing to exercise that political capital. I don't think at other I, I don't think that savviness. I'm not trying to excuse him. I think it's inexcusable that the United States, but I don't think it's just Roosevelt. It's the Congress. It's it's other parts of the executive that are even sabotaging the positive things he is approving, like the War Refugee Board and slow walking that, that's an important dynamic of it. And there is American public opinion, which is overwhelmingly opposed to anything that uh, helps the Jews. Most Americans think, majority think that the Jews have bought the problem on themselves. 86% after Kristallnacht, 86% of Protestants, 85% of Catholics, and 25% of American Jews don't think we should let in anybody after that. And when the whole war is over, he's dead, and we've got all the pictures of the stuff. Um, You know, 5% want to let in more refugees. Your film lays out what Americans didn't didn't know uh, and about what was happening to the Jews in Europe in the early 1940s. American newspapers had reported that Jews were being deported to ghettos in Poland and labor camps in the German-occupied Soviet Union. But their readers had no way of knowing 
that the Nazis had already begun the mass murder of Jews, that they were actually determined to eliminate all the Jews of Europe, and that they had found a new, more efficient method of doing it. Gas. I was shocked to learn that three-quarters of Holocaust victims were murdered in a span of 20 months before a single U.S. troop got to Europe. That's yeah. right. And that's one of the power of the film, is to, is to put this in chronological order for us. How much did Americans actually know in the early 1940s? So I think one of the things we try to do in the film, because we always work chronologically, and that Ken always says, God is the greatest dramatist, so why make it up? So if you march through the chronology of what's happening to the Jews of Europe, and you realize that once Hitler invades the Soviet Union and they want to move east, they murder in a span of 20 months, known uh, the Shoah by bullets, in cruel and inhuman ways, mostly shooting um, Jewish men, women, children, elderly people into pits. There is some reporting in 1942 about that, but a lot of it happens in secret, and we don't know all of the information. And Roosevelt actually is quite careful once the information is out and once the troops are in North Africa and then headed into Italy, let alone Normandy, that we have to defeat fascism because he is worried about American anti-Semitism and sending an entire army to save Jews uh, of Europe. So he's, he is wrestling and he's, you're right, he's a very, very smart politician. He's hard to know exactly what he's thinking. He didn't leave behind his tapes and, you know, diaries, as, as Lynn always says. It's hard to know what he was thinking, but he did understand that American anti-Semitism was real, European anti-Semitism was real, and he had to be very careful how he messaged that. Yeah, we got information we digested it and really kind of did nothing about it. Roosevelt, the administration, speaks out forcefully and says that the people should be punished who are doing this. But by the time we've got an airfield in Italy that can get to Auschwitz and back on a single tank of gas, then you've, you've entered into one of the most complicated debates of the entire story is that do you bomb the rail lines at Auschwitz? They can be replaced overnight if they're bombed. Our bombing is imprecise to the, an extraordinary degree that more than 80% of all the bombs dropped in Europe in the Second World War fell more than five miles from their intended targets. So then you go to the question of whether you would bomb Auschwitz itself, whether you would lose pilots in the service of what? Killing the people to stop the killing? So you've got hugely complex uh, dynamics and what would the American public do if they knew uh, their um, their soldiers were dying trying to save the Jews rather than end the war? When Lincoln fought for union initially, and when he finally issued the Emancipation Proclamation, an Illinois regiment, troops from his own home state, said that they would rather lie down and let moss grow on their backs than fight for the liberation of the N-word. And that's the kind of, you know, bringing it up to date, the calculus there. I think, I think to be specific about the film and how we handle that very important question of what we should have done when we could have potentially bombed the rail lines, we have a very, I think, important debate between two of the leading scholars in the film on the subject. You know, it, it was July 1944 when Majdanek first, the first concentration camp was liberated and images from that liberation came to the American public that Americans were able to begin to understand what had occurred under Hitler's genocide. When Majdanek is liberated, American reporters are there and they send back reports that are devoid of the doubts that were shown when Bobby Yar was liberated a few months earlier. Americans are beginning to get the picture. I am now prepared to believe any story of German atrocities, no matter how savage, cruel, and depraved. How did the images coming from that liberation change the American perspective? 
Well, I think it overwhelmingly changed public opinion into sympathy and kind of understanding for what had taken place. And we really have to be super important. A concentration camp is not employing gas. A concentration camp is in Germany. It's starving its inmates. It's working them to death. It's not feeding them. It is, it, it's a horrible place. And they are burning the evidence of the deaths in crematoria. In Nazi-occupied Poland are five or six killing centers where gas, after the Shoah by bullets, which kills two million Jews, just into the pits. They're using gas and Zyklon B to kill people in gas chambers and burning the evidence in crematoria and working some of them. And they're the famous ones, the Auschwitz and... Um, uh, Treblinka and uh, Sobibor and Chelmno and Belzic, right? These are the, the, the main ones. They're quite different. So this, the Germans get rid of the evidence of all but Auschwitz because Auschwitz gets taken by the, by the Russians first. It's the concentration camps, the original holding pens for people in Germany that get liberated by the Western forces, by, by Canadian and British and Americans. And that's where we get our first business, where Eisenhower is just fantastic in this and asks newspaper editors and congressional delegations to come, orders his officers to send their troops there, you know, in their spare time to come and see what the, the Nazi machine, the brutal Nazi killing machine has done. And I think American reporters at the time really did write in many interesting publications, including Vogue magazine, incredible photographs by the um, woman Lee Miller. And the headline in Vogue is, believe it. So any doubt you may have had, mm -hmm. here is the evidence. There are parallels throughout the film. Uh, between anti-Semitism and prejudice that fueled the Holocaust and anti-immigrant and pro-authoritarian sentiment in the United States today. Take a look at this clip from your series. By 1910, New York would be home to more than a million Jews, more than a quarter of the city's population, far more than any other city on Earth. The anxieties about urbanization, about unlettered, untutored, relatively uneducated peoples coming in in large numbers, the sense that disease was a problem. All of these worries were amalgamated into a belief that immigrants caused these problems, and thus immigration should be held down. Many white Protestant Americans came to fear they were about to be outnumbered and outbred by the newcomers and their offspring that they were being replaced. You say that you try to avoid contemporary motivations in your films, but it's hard to miss references from the 20th century that resonate really strongly. In this century, there's a speech from a senator about building a wall around the United States. There is Charles Lindbergh's involvement in the isolationist America First Committee, a phrase that we've heard over and over in the last six years. How do you explain these resemblances? The Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament says, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. History has never repeated itself, never, ever repeated itself. But there are things that human beings continually do, good and bad. And we, in every film we had, I could take any one of the films we've made and give you a list of what if I told you about what was happening in Prohibition and, and it would sound exactly like today. Or Vietnam, what if I told you and it would be exactly about what things were like when Vietnam came out. The only difference was that this film, as we were working on it, we began to realize, as the ADL has noted, that the increase in anti-Semitic incidences is just off the charts. You know, they think it's back to the level of the 1930s. And so we were beginning to realize that so much of the things that were resonating it with today that we were talking about were increasing the more we worked on the film. Not, not that we were doing anything, but that just events were moving in that way. And it was shocking and terrifying and disappointing. What rhymes in the context of Americans' attitudes towards refugees today, Sarah? Well, I think there's, you know, the references to build a wall, 
keep Americans out, I, I, I keep other people out, keep America for America, this notion of America first. I think the rhetoric that seems shocking to us when you watch the film is not only not shocking to audiences today, I think it's much more acceptable. I think people in America, we seem to have really shifted generationally into what is acceptable, hate speech, racist epithets, anti-Semitic propaganda. Uh, you know, I think social media is very dangerous when it comes to this. That's new. We, we've talked, imagine if there was Twitter during the Holocaust, what would that have, how would that have reframed what was happening? So I think um, the resonances and echoes are, are, are frightening. And, and there is, I think, an acceptance to a hate speech that I don't remember. Sarah, your father, Leon Botstein, the longtime president of Bard College, appeared on the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. more than a dozen times. Uh, in 1995, he debated against a resolution that stated all immigration should be drastically reduced. And in that debate brought up one of the central themes of your film. Take a look. In 1933, if you had given a poll of Americans whether they should open the doors, or in the late 30s, 1938, to the Jews of Europe, uh, would you have thought that was an adequate answer, that they didn't want more Jews in the United States, and therefore our restrictive quota policy led indirectly to the death of millions of Jews? This is what what would you say the, about this? This is called the St. Louis Gambit. It's this, not the a suggestion Louis is that we should have moved I'm a descendant of one of the few survivors. Well, but the point is that at that point in time, or even today, we cannot accept everyone who wants to come here. I mean, it's, it's sort of incredible, actually. I had not seen that clip. You know, my father came here in 1949 on the USS America as a three-year-old boy to the Bronx. I think my family, my grandparents, their friends, the people that I knew, all took great advantage and contributed. And I think the, re the refute to him is that I think our immigrants and our refugees have made this country a place worth living in. I can't not get your take on this. Um, in China, there are millions, millions of Muslim ethnic minorities, including the Uyghurs, who are being detained, placed in internment camps, where they are beaten, prohibited from practicing their religion, in some cases, forced to undergo sterilization. A recent report from the United Nations called China's actions, quote, crimes against humanity. And of course, the United States State Department did declare the treatment of the Uyghurs a genocide. Yes. The term genocide as your film notes, was coined in 1944 to describe Nazi acts of systemic murder during the Holocaust. The U.S. Congress has taken some legislative action against forced labor. Um, the Biden administration has taken some executive action uh, on the matter. But do you see any indication that our leaders or our country have learned from genocides in the past? I don't see how we can be positive in this regard. You know, we said at the end of the Second World War about the Holocaust, never again. And we have had genocides in Rwanda and Bosnia and Herzegovina. We've had them in Syria. We've had, as you pointed out, among the Uyghur minority in China, among the Rohingyas in, in Southeast Asia. It seems to be a perpetual human thing. We're now in the midst of a war in Ukraine, which is covering the same territories, the same towns that are in our film. Uh, Baba Yar is outside of what we now say Kiev, Kiev there, the town that one of our um, on-camera commentators, the writer Daniel Mendelssohn's family is from, was in eastern Poland, is now part of western Ukraine. I mean, this is just the territory uh, going on. Uh, I don't think we've learned. We've also learned that the economic pressures, the depression helped magnify people's insecurities and helped magnify the sort of anti-immigrant sentiment. And that's always used by demagogues uh, to do that. But let's also remember that the Hollywood uh, studios, uh, many of them run by Jews, uh, the, the German vice council had a, basically the green light on any film if it had anything to do with Germany and nothing was said negative about Germany for years and years out of fear of the market. And so you have China, which manufactures many of the components of, of what drives the engine of American tech and, and many other just ordinary items. And you have people unwilling to take forceful stands because it affects the immediate bottom line. And you find human beings back as Ecclesiastes recognized 
millennia ago that there's nothing new under the sun. And I'm afraid that if you can punt, people will punt. Your film ends with a montage of imagery, including Charleston's Emanuel Church shooter, Dylan Roof, neo-Nazis rallying in Charlottesville, scenes from Pittsburgh after the Tree of Life, synagogue shooting, and scenes from January 6th. Have a look at this clip. We have seen the nadir of human behavior, and we have no guarantee that it won't recur. If we can make that clear and graphic and understandable, not as a, something to imitate, but as a warning of what can happen to human beings, then perhaps we have one shield against its recurrence. Sarah, do you see this film as a warning? I, I do think that the film can be a warning that human beings are capable of doing horrendous things to each other so bad that while they're happening, they can't believe it's happening. That democracies fall quickly. That institutions crumble quickly. And for me, that is the thing to push against. That I still believe, having made this film and worked with Ken for as long as I have, that America is a very special country. It is a great land of opportunity that we are very privileged to live in a pretty much working democracy and that people should exercise their right to vote and that we should vote in our local school board elections, in our local communities, in our congressional elections and in our presidential elections and that we can push against, use the system to make it better. You repeat a number as it relates to Herbert Hoover that has been widely cited, but also refuted by academic scholars. It is the claim that 1.8 million Mexicans were deported during the Hoover administration. And you may be aware that scholars have asserted that that number was wildly inflated, that, quote, estimates using census data indicate substantially lower numbers, limited government involvement, fewer citizens, and considerable voluntary departure. Now, I don't need to tell you that there's a negative narrative that was predominant in the 20th century, which associated Herbert Hoover as a synonym for economic hard times. And as a storyteller, it could be easy to extend that negative association to xenophobia as well. And I think there's a case to be made that there's a, a courtesy of context that could be owed to Herbert Hoover in the context of how he came to prominence as a humanitarian who aided Europeans during World War I. But I mention this only to ask you, as a historian, how do you think about combating the gravitational pull of a narrative once it's solidified in the public mind? Yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. And, you know, uh, with regard to the statistics, we're fairly confident talking to scholars with our numbers. I mean, we, we don't just pull them out of one scholar, but average and, and read different things. But I think that, that the important point is that when the novelist Richard Powers said, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view, the only thing that can do that is a good story. And we're, in, we're storytellers. We're amateur historians, and we're in the storytelling business. I don't think Hoover has ever been a foil for us, except when we showed the picture of the the front of the magazine with a beaming um, FDR at the inauguration drive and the dour Hoover in that But again, way. that solidifies a narrative. So how, how do you combat narratives? Well, we are... have the conservative um, writer George Will talking at that moment is that the best New Deal policy was Franklin Roosevelt's smile. So I don't think it, it, it is a negative Hoover as much as it was a positive Roosevelt. And, and that's an important thing to do. So I, mean, I, I think that Hoover doesn't really need any rehabilitation because he was so remarkable in you his post-presidency. No, I don't think so. Oh. I think, you know, I remember even my father, who was a staunch lefty when he died, just talked to me about all the extraordinary things that, that Hoover had done in his life. Ken, you said in a recent interview, quote, there's so much capacity for evil, human nature doesn't change. What gives you hope then? Well, I think that, that we are still the nation of immigrants, right? Even though we are also a nation 
that does not believe in that. We begin our film quoting extensively from Emma Lazarus' poem, and the Statue of Liberty remains a kind of visual trope throughout the series from the beginning to the end. But we follow her poem with a recitation by Thomas Bailey Aldrich, who was the editor of The Atlantic, not some guy off in some far corner of the, the Twitter sphere of, 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 of opinion, saying, white goddess, is it good to leave our gates unguarded, that the people who are coming in are speaking alien tongues that the Tower of Babel knew. And so this is us as well. And so for me, it's about the acceptance of, of, of using facts to tell complex stories in which a thing and the opposite of a thing, as Wint Marcellus said to us in jazz, could be true at the same time. That you could contain with a Franklin Roosevelt someone disposed to help and at times unable and unwilling, perhaps, to help. That, that when we categorize and paint with one brush everything, we do ourselves a disservice and not just the people in the past. That's your Hoover question, too. You just don't like the broad brush, and no one likes the broad brush. And that's why in our editing room, we have in cursive this lowercase sign that says it's complicated. There isn't a filmmaker in the world that wants to mess with a scene that's working, except us. Because if we find out new information, contradictory information, when we locked our film, we unlocked it 150 times to pull out an adjective because it was too much, to add a qualifying perhaps or some said rather than be absolutely certain about it, to help be honest. We have our footnotes to the sources are you know, is almost as big as the script itself. And so we're constantly talking to scholars. I don't think there was a day in the last year and a half when we haven't spoken to at least one, if not two, of the scholars that we worked with at the Holocaust Museum or the Holocaust Museum introduced us to just to get it right. And I think it is a big mass of stuff to dump on the American people, but it's also something that we're capable of doing. This is what we like, big, huge, complicated sagas in which nobody is perfect. And at the same time, out of that, in this film, which we haven't talked about, are all the heroic individuals who sacrifice life and limb to save other human beings. All of the non-boldface name organizations with lots of alphabet soups and the American Joint Distribution, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the YMCA, the American Friends Service, the Unity, all these people who are saving other human beings. Americans who are doing this while all of this is going on. And while we use some of the, the sort of the obvious binary aspects of this story for our own badminton games in the presence, we forget what actually happened, which is we have turned the number six million into an opaque figure that means nothing. And that we, it is important, as we have tried to do in this film, to personalize and dissolve that opacity by making real the individuals, the individual who writes his friend, knowing he's going to his death. I just want the world to know that someone named David Berger lived. That's the important thing. It's Daniel Mendelssohn taking his great aunt, uncle Shmiel Jaeger from Bolohov in eastern Poland and finding out what happened to him and his wife and their four daughters, make their lives. He wants to find the particularities of them. Who were they? What did they do and how did they die? One, only one of them went to a gas chamber. All the others died in horrible ways. That's the important thing about the Holocaust. And at that time, Americans had a relationship or they didn't have a relationship. They cared or they didn't care. But the important thing is to remove the opacity from the Six million and make these people an amputated limb that we still feel. What cures were not discovered because they're not here? What symphonies weren't written? What gardens weren't grown? What children weren't raised well? That's the only thing that really, really matters. And the binary ping pong that we indulge in are to avoid our own culpability, but our own difficulty in understanding the depth, as Sarah is saying, of our cruelty as human beings to each other. And so I think I'm optimistic in that these stories all have as broad relief the positive things that we human beings do and still can do. And I'll say again that the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. Just as 
Deborah Lipstadt says the time to end a genocide is before it starts. I think the other thing that we haven't talked about, which is interesting just in listening to the conversation today, is how from where I sit, much stronger and more brilliant and more special a country it is because of our immigrant populations at every stage of history, that immigrants are what has made this country unique, special, unusual, and a place I want to raise my children in. So I think we should celebrate the contributions of all immigrant groups, and particularly the Jews who did make it here helped transform huge, huge, huge aspects of the American culture. The series is U.S. and the Holocaust. It starts this Sunday. Congratulations to you both, and thank you for the contribution. Thank you for having us. 